All right. Hey, everybody. It's good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here at the summit. And um, thank you to a couple of our city groups for doing that. That was beautiful. And um, here's what we're going to do tonight. It's Palm Sunday. Uh, Like we said, we are going to um, be talking about kind of the events leading up to and ultimately culminating in the death of Jesus on our behalf. And um, kind of the inspiration for that actually came from a conversation I was having with uh, one of our members a few weeks ago. And we were talking, I was telling him we were going to do Psalm 22 for today. And uh, he made a comment to me. He said, you know, I think um, that that psalm, what it reflects, especially those opening words like, God, have you, for, have you forgotten me? Have you forsaken me? Is something that we've all felt uh, at some time in our lives. And, uh, you know, it's one of the reasons I love the Bible so much. It, like, speaks into the most real and raw emotions of our lives. And I think Psalm 22 is such a great uh, example of that. And so tonight, kind of the goal or the aim is that we're going to try to talk about, I mean, if you're here tonight, um, and if you have ever, are now, or in the future, <laughs> experiencing uh, pain, suffering, hardship, frustration, fear, anxiety, depression. Basically, if you're a human being, what we're going to try to do is help you make sense of all of that through the lens of the suffering of Jesus Christ. Now, um, before we kind of talk about all of that, all of that mess, um, let me just make an observation before we jump into the text. And uh, I think I would just say that um, I think for us, probably as a culture at large, as well as uh, for us as individuals who make up this culture, um, we're not tremendously comfortable when it comes to kind of all those things I just uh, listed. Now, um, we're kind of comfortable as long as that mess uh, is kind of easily uh, uh, fixable and we can kind of give three steps in order to make everything better and there's kind of a happy ending uh, right on the, on the other end of things and we can kind of put this neatly in a box and tie it with a ribbon and be like, look, like, look how good all of this is. And I think, you know, that's why, for example, you know, in movies, you know, you see um, plenty of conflicts in movies, but a lot of times they're not provided unless there's a a resolution coming in the next 30 minutes that's going to tell you that, you know, all the characters that you love live happily ever after. I think this is why, you know, commercials, um, they will speak into a lot of our deepest fears and our biggest problems and our greatest sufferings and pains that we feel. Um, but, you know, we'll kind of only let them do that as long as, you know, there's a solution. So it's like, okay, well, you don't like your appearance. Well, good news, here's a Soloflex. Now you're skinny and you'll be happy forever after. Or, you know, you're depressed, but congratulations, here's this pill and um, you can take it. Now you'll be happy forever uh, after. You know, you feel unfulfilled in your job and career or you're not uh, making enough money, but, you know, Good news for you. There's the University of Phoenix to let you get this particular degree. And uh, you'll get this degree, and then you will be fulfilled, and you will love your life. And uh, all you have to do is watch this commercial, and it happens, and you don't even have to try. I mean, it's just absolutely, absolutely amazing. And so, I mean, that's kind of our, not just kind of cultural, but really even our individual approach to people's pain and suffering. Um, You know, somebody, you know, somebody brought a major problem to you this week and kind of laid it in to your lap for you to deal with, um, you know, probably the majority of you, majority of us, I'll put myself in here as well because I don't know what to do with all this, um, either, uh, either try to kind of get out of the conversation as, like, politely as possible, uh, or, you know, we kind of came with a one-liner or a story, or here, read this book, here's exactly how to fix this, here's how everything will be better, here's this one time in my life, I went through the exact same thing, and here's, you know, it's just like, and we want, like, within about five minutes and a cup of coffee for everything to be Okay. Now, here's why I I lead with all this and I start with all this is because um, if 
you are here tonight and you are the person who is struggling and who is depressed and who is suffering and who is fighting for joy in your life. I mean, as helpful as those stories might be about that, you know, one time there was this one person who went through the exact same thing and now it's all better. I mean, as helpful as those stories may be, I mean, the reality is, is you want something far more relevant and robust to break into your life, to bring the healing that you so desperately desire. I mean, you know, again, let's just, let's just be super practical. Like for some of you, um, you know, maybe the major struggle that you're going through right now is that you're single and you don't want to be single anymore and you desperately desire to be married and your parents are talking to you about marriage and, you know, they're always asking when you come home for holidays, like, why are you coming home alone? And you're like, well, I'm not trying to be alone. You know, like, thanks a lot, mom. And, um, you know, you've probably had people throw stories at you all day about how, um, you know, I had this friend uh, who was single also, and they didn't want to be single, and they met somebody, and they got married, and they're not even half as attractive as you are. And if they can get married, then, like, you can get married. Anybody can get married. It's like, man, thanks so much for the, the encouragement. And, um, you know, I, I think that I'm not trying to be a, a hater with all, you know, with all this, but I just think... Um, Again, for those of you who really are feeling the weight of something heavy right now, um, I think that kind of these quick fixes and these stories of how everything kind of turns out better in the end, as I was thinking about this week, I think, at least in my own life, it's felt a lot like if I was stranded on a desert island and I wanted kind of like a cold glass of water because I was dehydrated, and then I see like a rescue boat approach, and a guy gets off, and he's like, hey, like this one time I had a friend who was also stranded on a desert island, and we got him a glass of water. Here's a picture of the glass of water that we got him. It's like, no, like I need something much more tangible and real to break into my life. I need to not not just know that it's okay for somebody else. I need to know that it's going to be okay for me. And so the reason we say all of this is that if you are fighting and struggling, if you're trying to help somebody alongside that, you know, we do. We long for something more robust and relevant to break into our lives. And I really believe that Psalm 22 is going to provide that for us tonight. I really believe it is. And I believe that as we try to make sense of of Palm Sunday, kind of the initiation of the events that, that culminate with the death of Jesus on our behalf for our sins, I mean, what you're going to get is, is a really beautiful truth that will break into the most practical areas uh, of our lives. So uh, that's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through Psalm 22. It's a beautiful, beautiful psalm. And uh, thank you, city groups, for reading it so uh, beautifully. Now, um, if you want to look at that, we'll also have the text um, on the screen. What you see is, so the, let, me, let me just give you a little bit of the context. Um, we just finished with the book of Proverbs. Proverbs was written by a guy named Solomon. And Solomon's dad, David, wrote the majority of the Psalms. It's kind of a compilation and collection of songs, hymns, poems that really do reveal the most real and raw emotions of the human heart. Psalm 22 is a really uh, great example of this. And um, what I want to do is I want to read the first two verses, but I want to read it with you kind of having a question in your mind as we're reading it. So I'm going to read this again, but here's the question I want to ask you as we're kind of working through this. So the question I would ask you is, why do you think, especially in the account that Andy just read for us, that these are Jesus' final words, like why do you think the writers who were kind of chronicling the events of Jesus' final breaths, why do you think basically they inclu- decided to include that? Like, why do you think they decided to include? They could have put a lot of different things. Why do you think they decided to include? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So let's, let's read the text, and then we'll try to answer that question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer him by night, but I find no rest. So 
why do you think that the authors of the New Testament would, would mention Jesus quoting exactly what we read right here? Well, let, let me give you maybe a couple of reasons. I think the first, and this is kind of easy to overlook, is the first reason they included is because it actually happened. Now, I don't know about you, um, but you or probably somebody you know is skeptical of Christianity and has looked at the Bible and said, you know, this book uh, is nothing more than sort of a propaganda piece that was written to collect a bunch of stories and fables in order to trick somebody just like me into believing in God or in Jesus or going to church or giving my money away or whatever it is. This is nothing more than a big propaganda piece. And, you know, it's, it's stories like the one that we just read where Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, is crying out, God, why have you forsaken me that I really believe the Bible is absolutely true. Because like, if these guys are trying to make up a story to trick you into believing, they're really bad at it. You understand? Like, you, you don't include this if you're trying to kind of like trick people into believing. You don't have the founder of the faith being like, God, why have you abandoned me? I, I think really the only logical explanation for why it's included is because it actually happened. In real history, two real people, as real as you and me, will do life this week. Now, uh, the second reason is kind of a little bit more uh, personal and less intellectual. Um, I think the second reason that it's included is that what Jesus and his earliest followers want us to understand is his relatability in suffering. Okay, Jesus's relatability, his ability to relate to us uh, in the midst of our suffering and our pain and whatever it is that you are going through even this week. We'll unpack what that means here in a second, but let me just say this, is that it's Jesus's ability to relate to our pain that is unbelievably good news, and it really does, I really believe it makes all the difference in whatever it is that you're going through. It's, it's when you can kind of trust somebody to relate that you really start to see kind of a beautiful fruit in terms of what you're going through. Well, let me just give you an example from my own life. Um, my wife, Megan, and I um, have had a, a kind of a back-and-forth conversation for the past few months that you tend to have um, when you've been married for several years, and it's been about the state of our vacuum cleaner. Now, um, you're like, what? Um, now, let me, let me kind of, maybe you've had this conversation with your wife as well, but um, usually it begins like, sweetheart, honey, um, can we get a brand new vacuum cleaner? And if you're a husband, you respond with, well, what's wrong with the vacuum cleaner that we have? And, you know, my wife responds with, well, you know, the vacuum cleaner that we have, it doesn't work very well, it doesn't work great on hardwood floors, and we have these two giant monster chocolate labs that leave hair everywhere, and this vacuum cleaner is terrible at cleaning up hair. And, you know, a husband, you typically don't listen very well, but you're more of like, well, maybe when the other one goes out or maybe when we have more money or maybe later on, you know, we'll get a new vacuum cleaner. And we've gone back and forth, back and forth, back and forth on this over and over and over again. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I think it was actually two weeks from yesterday, um, Megan did probably the most brilliant thing I've ever seen her do in our marriage. This is a very smart tactical ploy. And um, all you wives, can you just give me a nod to say you will not do this? You, you will not do this because all of you will be getting new vacuum cleaners and then all your husbands will be mad at me. Um, so wives... You promise not to do this? Nobody's nodding. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Husbands, you're on your own um, with this. So I walk into the living room, and uh, Megan has placed the vacuum cleaner in the middle of the living room, and she's just sitting there watching TV. And I'm like, hey, like, what's, what's going on? She's like, well, I vacuumed the entire house, uh, but you can vacuum the living room, and you can kind of experience what it's like to have to use this vacuum cleaner. And I'm like, this ain't no big deal. Like, you're not going to be tricking me into, like, buying you a new vacuum cleaner. So I'm like, okay, fine. I plug the thing in, and I start on it. And uh, our, living room, our living room is uh, hardwood floors. And, um, you know, the, to be honest, 
Um, it was not going very well. The vacuum cleaner does not do very well on hardwood floors, and uh, the dog hair uh, was not coming up whatsoever. And so I had to stop using like the main sucky thing, and I had to pull out like the special attachment. The only problem with the special attachment is like you can't do it standing up, uh, but you can't do it on all fours. You kind of have to like lean over like this. So I'm like going through our living room, going like this, and my back is starting to hurt, and my neck is like I feel like I'm about to go paralyzed in my neck. And uh, after about three minutes, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. After about three minutes, I'm like, okay enough. I'm sorry. You were right. This vacuum cleaner is absolutely terrible, and we can talk about getting a new one, okay? I didn't commit to a new one, just uh, we can talk about getting a new one, and I know exactly where this is uh, headed, especially since I use it in a sermon now. Um, Now, what happened? What happened in that moment? Like, what happened in that moment? Well, there was a change that took place inside me where I went kind of in understanding Megan's pain, and I went from kind of like having some sort of cerebral awareness and knowledge about her pain to actually experiencing and entering into her pain and to have a much deeper understanding of exactly what it is, and an ability to empathize, an ability, not just an ability to empathize, but an ability to understand and even reconcile the problem that was bringing great, great pain into her life. Now, here's the deal is that when Jesus Christ is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What you're seeing is God's proclamation that he himself is willing not just to have some sort of cerebral knowledge about the pain and suffering that we endure, but he is willing to enter into it. God in the flesh stepping out of heaven into history to experience the full human pain that comes with doing life in a broken world. That's what's happening in this moment that Jesus Christ is crying out, why have you forsaken me? He is proclaiming his ability to relate to those of us who have said verbally, to those of us who have spoken quietly in our hearts, God, do you really care? Are you there? Do you even know that I'm here anymore? Are you even hearing me anymore? Is it even worthwhile for me to pray to you anymore? Should I just kind of expect the worst case scenario to unfold and this whole thing to unravel absolutely out of control? We said earlier at the very beginning that this is one of those emotions that we've felt before. And again, maybe you haven't said it. We don't really talk this way. Like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You probably haven't used that language in the city group before, but you probably have when you're putting your head down on the pillow at night and trying to fall asleep and are mind mapping out the worst case scenario of the way this, wor- this stressful situation is going to go. When you're thinking about the one thing that you want the most and how God is not giving you the one thing you want the most and how he must not care about you in the way that you so desperately desire, you've probably felt inside of you, are you really there? Do you really care? Is this thing really true? Is it really real for my life? And here's what's unbelievably crazy to me. I can't really wrap my mind around it philosophically, but I believe that it's absolutely true. As you, if you have ever felt forsaken by God, here's the good news. God knows what it's like to be forsaken by God. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what he is proclaiming in that moment is his ability to fully relate to the greatest pain that comes with doing life in a universe gone wrong. So he's able to relate. Now, so with Psalm 22, it talks to us about then Jesus' ability to relate to our suffering. And then It's going to talk to us about kind of our responsibility in suffering. So if I have been describing you, and if you have been struggling, if, you know, basically, if you are carrying this weight, like, 
what is your responsibility? What is it that we practically do? In fact, I mean, you know, again, I'm trying to even just wrap my mind around this in my own life. Like, um, you know, many of you know that Megan and I, we felt called to prioritize growing our family through adoption. We felt like our hearts are aligned with the heart of God to care for the fatherless and for uh, the orphan. And we uh, jumped kind of head first into that process 18 months ago. 18 months. Like, we always joke that we feel pregnant and we don't have a due date. It is like the craziest experience of our lives. And I'm telling you, like, we feel this. Like, this is not just kind of, I mean, if you don't get anything out of this, I'm at least just going to preach in the next 20 minutes to myself because I'm trying to figure out, like, okay, God, here's the one thing that I want the most and you're not giving it to me, and it's good. And, um, and, you know, and like the difficult thing even with it, if you've been in an experience like this, whatever it is, maybe it's you wanting to get married, maybe it is that you want to grow your family, uh, maybe it is that you want to have a more fulfilling career, or I'm not sure, whatever it is. But I mean, the reality is, is people can come to you with stories of happy endings all day long, but you don't know that's the way it's going to end up. Like, that's the way I look at my own situation. Like, there's no guarantee that I get what I want in this. Like, there's no guarantee of that. And so how do we process that in the midst of our suffering and pain when there aren't kind of bows to put on the package of suffering? What is it that we're supposed to do? In Psalm 22, what it's going to do is give us a couple things to actually do, which is really good news for somebody like me. What you're going to see, I think, is really like a dance almost, like a kind of like one step forward in joy and belief, and then like a step back in like honesty and despair. And I want you to just see how this goes. So like it started off pretty despairing, right? Like, my God, you've forgotten me. You don't listen to me. You don't know who I am. And look at verse three. He kind of like tries to come back then with, with joy and belief. Yet you are holy and throned on the praises of Israel and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued and you, they trusted and were not put to shame. And so you can see here that he's fighting for hope. He's returning to the covenant promises of God and how he's demonstrated grace and faithfulness and rescue and and redemption to to him and his family for multiple generations. And then he's like, okay, I'm going to go back and I'm going to be honest about what I'm feeling. Look at verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So he's just honest about the despair. And then he's like, back to the hope. Look at verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you in my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. And then all of a sudden he returns back to an honest assessment of how bad things are. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. And so do you see this? It's like a, it's like a dance back and forth, like one step forward in joy and belief, one step back in an honest assessment of the peril-inducing circumstances that the psalmist has been placed in. It's not even like a dance. It's more like a fight. Like, that's what you're seeing here, is like uh, uh, somebody fighting for joy in the midst of their circumstances telling them they should have no joy. I'm not sure if you've ever felt that before, but I can perfectly resonate uh, with this. And so let's be practical. Okay, so you are the person then who is struggling, and your circumstances tell you to disbelieve and to be terrified 
and be depressed. Like, what is it that you do? Well, here's what you see. You kind of get your two steps here. I mean, the one, what this is going to give you is a couple things. The first is this. This is going to give you the permission for honesty. Okay, the permission for authentic honesty. So you have to give permission. Um, maybe it's to yourself. Uh, maybe it's to somebody that you're walking alongside. So maybe you're not going through something that describes this, but you know somebody who is, a friend, a family member, um, a neighbor. Um, What you have to do is first, you need to give yourself or somebody else the permission to be authentically honest. And I think, here's the deal, is that I think that a lot of times, particularly in church circles, there's this kind of pressure that we put on ourselves that I'm not sure, it sounds spiritual, I don't think it's very biblical, that's where it gets a little bit tricky, where we, kind of in the midst of our suffering, have to quickly fix and resolve everything. And so um, here's how God is changing me. Here's how he's fixing me. Here's how it's all going to be better. Here's how he's going to work it for good. And I think a lot of times, like, we just don't feel the full gravity and the weight of the sadness that comes they're just really bad things happening to us. And I want you to see, like, the way that this author does this. I mean, verse 1, you've forsaken me. Verse 2, oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Verse 7, all who seek me, uh, all who see me mock me, and they make mouths of me. They wag their heads. Verse 8, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Like, there's an Old Testament scholar named uh, Trimper Longman, and here's what he writes just about this and just the Psalms as a whole. He says, there are so many examples from the Psalms where there is a healthy raising of the fist to God. And it's like, almost like, you're not allowed to say that. You know, like, you can't say that in church. Like, that's what I want to say to Psalm 22. Like, you can't say that in church. It's like, well, I'm the Bible, so, like, I win over, like, what you, and it's like, you can't say that. You can't doubt God like that. And God's like, I am big enough to handle it. Like, I am the one who's full of sovereign grace. I reign and rule over the universe. Like, I can handle your doubts and your struggles and your honesty. And I think if we just, especially in the church culture, I think a lot of times when we are struggling, our greatest problem is not necessarily that we disbelieve or we despair. I think that we put this pressure on ourselves for counterfeit and inauthentic hope. I really think that's the greatest problem that we have. And so you've got, um, I'm telling you, if you or you're walking alongside somebody who's experiencing something really sad, like the things that we've been talking about, it is okay for you to be honest about those things. It is okay to be sad. It is okay to grieve the loss of a family member, the loss of an opportunity that you thought was going to be given to you, the loss of whatever, whatever it might be. The, Psalm, the Psalms are so unbelievably honest about what is going on in their lives in the midst of despair. Now, he doesn't just kind of wallow in his despair, though. So look at this. He also gives the gift, not just of honesty, but also of the gift of hope, the gift of unwavering hope. And so look at this. Look how he's fighting for hope and joy in the midst of all of this. You know, verses 4 through 5, he reminds himself of God's faithfulness to him in the past. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. Verses 9 through 10, he's talking about like the grace of God that he's experienced since the day he was even born. Verse 9, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust in my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. 
he's not just despairing. He is fighting. He is fighting for joy, fighting for belief. I hope you understand that. A lot of times joy and belief, especially in the midst of depression and fear and anxiety and struggles and pain and suffering, it is a fight. That's what you're seeing here. And so you've got to give yourself the permission to fight for that. You've got to give somebody else. I mean, especially if it's somebody else, you need to like get in the ring with them. And I'm telling you, this is where maybe stories are very helpful of the way that God has been faithful in the past. This is where, I mean, you just, I mean, through a text message, through your presence, through your prayers, can really make the difference in the lives of somebody. This is even where, I mean, let me just be super practical. I think the Bible is so necessary for daily living for us. You know what's really challenging me to this? Is what does Jesus quote in his moment of greatest suffering? Um, you know, for me, in my moments of greatest suffering, and I think, let's, let's just talk collectively for us as a city. I think in our moments of greatest suffering, like, what do we do? Like, we try to find some sort of substance to make us not have to think about it. You know, it's like, I'm going to get drunk, I'm going to get high, I'm going to watch TV, play video games. Like, that's, I won't have to think about it anymore, and it'll just go away. But, like, what spills out of Jesus in the moment of his greatest suffering, it's the scriptures. Like, even God in the flesh in the moment of suffering is building his life on the foundation of the word. And so that's why I'd even be super practical to say, like, the Bible is really relevant for real living, and you need to be reading it and saturating yourself in it because it, like, really is helpful in the moments that matter the most. And so, so we're seeing here. What do we do? So, I mean, it's helpful to know that Jesus can perfectly relate, but what is our responsibility? What do we do? We fight. I mean, we dance. We fight whatever kind of image you prefer. We, we fight for joy. We're honest about what we're going through, and it's just it's back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Now, what I love about the way this psalm ends then is it's like, it's even more concrete about the way that that fight ends. I love it. Um, What it provides for us is really kind of the hope in our suffering. So like, what is that hope? I feel like I haven't even been very specific about it yet. And I love how specific Psalm 22 practically is. Um, What what this kind of reminded me of this week is um, when I was growing up, I know that my very pale complexion does not reflect this. Um, but I would, like, go to the pool, like, every day during the summer. And uh, my grandparents uh, would take me there. And, like, when you're, you know, a kid, um, what do you do when you go to the pool? Like, especially if you're, you know, a little boy, it is your God-given responsibility to create, like, the biggest splash you possibly can and, you know, spray your family members and the people who are sunbathing. And, like, oh, I'm too cool to swim. And, you know, you want to get those uh, people in particular. And uh, I remember this one summer afternoon, um, uh, I think it was me and probably my brother Eric and some other friends are going like back and forth, trying, you know, doing cannonballs and trying to spray people. And, uh, you know, and then I'm like, I'm really going to blow you guys out of the water. You know, like pun very much uh, intended on that one. And, you know, I um, go onto the, uh, the diving board. And I don't know if you ever did this, but you, did you ever like when you went on the diving board, do one of those like running up things and then you jump up and then you come on the edge of the diving board so you can get even higher and then go out. You know what I'm talking about? So I decided to do that. And uh, I jump up. And instead of going out, I fall back because my feet, uh, as soon as I'm landing back down, um, slip right out from under me. The board was totally wet. And I hit the back of my head right on the edge of the diving board. I actually still have like a giant knot on the back of my skull from this. If anybody you know, wants to know if I tell true stories or not, um, you just come up here and feel it afterwards. And um, it's there. And uh, I remember to that moment, I'm like in the water, hoping I'm not going to die screaming bloody murder. And I remember in that moment, like what I'm really hoping for, um, you know, what my hope was really in 
I was not the lifeguard. I can distinctly remember him not paying attention whatsoever. I think he was like flirting over the drink machine. Um, I was not putting my hope in my grandparents. I love them, but not in my grandparents. You know, you don't want to depend on your grandparents' physical prowess to like (laughs) save you in a moment like that. Like what I was really putting my, my hope in was the fact that like I can reach onto a wall and grab onto something solid and everything is going to be okay. Now, here's the question I would ask you. It's not if, but when life in a broken world comes and kicks you right in the back of the head that you wonder if you're going to be able to go on living. Like, what are you going to grab a hold of? Like, what are you going to cling to? vague stories of inspiration that are on like daytime talk shows, like self-help books, a story that somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody went through the exact same thing and here's why everything is going to be okay. I think we need something far more solid and concrete than that. And I think what Psalm 22 is going to provide for us is exactly what this hope is. You know, in fact, what's so amazing about Psalm 22, if you want to look at that again with me, is that it's not just something that Jesus quotes, but it's really something, it's, it's a psalm that prophesies about what Jesus would do. Check with me. Even though it was written hundreds of years before Jesus' life and death and resurrection, Jesus doesn't just quote it, but this psalm, it actually prophesies the work of Jesus, what we call the gospel, which we believe is that solid hope that we cling to in the midst of our suffering. In fact, look at this. Look at verse, it, it kind of, anticipates um, the, the, the pain and the fruit of the gospel. Look at verse 16. It says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Like, that's really interesting. It is anticipating a man being crucified, which is what's really fascinating about this is this isn't even written hundreds of years prior to Jesus being crucified. This was written hundreds of years prior to crucifixion even being a thing. Like when this was written, crucifixion didn't even exist in the Roman Empire yet. And so David, he's looking into the future and he is looking into what the man of God will do. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and glow over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. I mean, tonight, read the story of Jesus' final hours. And this describes it to a T. But look, then also, I want you to skip down to verse 27. I mean, what this psalm is doing is it's teaching the heart of the gospel. That, I mean, this seed of incredible pain, uh, suffering and pain of the cross, it gives a a rise to a fruit so beautiful, it captures the hearts of nations. I mean, look at verse 27. What is the fruit of this seed of suffering? All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. And skip down to verse 31. It says, They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. What this psalm is prophesying, anticipating, is the heart of the gospel. That on one hand, when Jesus dies on a cross, it is the greatest injustice the world has ever known and has ever seen since. The one person in human history who was truly without sin dies for the sins of the world. 
And yeah, that incredible injustice, I mean, an injustice far more extreme than anything we will ever experience, gives rise to the most beautiful fruit the world has ever seen. It brings about the forgiveness of sins and the reconciliation of men and women, just like you and me, back to God. Change lives for eternity. Jesus Christ was condemned even though he was innocent so that we could be forgiven even though we were guilty. And in real history, to a real man, in a real historical setting, just like the one that you and I live in right now today, God, through the gospel, proclaimed that in his sovereign grace, even the most significant, extreme, mind-blowing, awful, vomit-inducing injustices of the world can give rise to the most beautiful, glorious fruit. And here's the thing, is I do believe that is the tangible hope that we reach out and grab a hold of in the midst of our suffering and our pain and our depression and our fear, and our anxiety. You know, what I don't think I can offer for you, I don't think what anybody can offer for you, you know, is, you know, a lot of times people are in the business of looking exactly what it is that you went through and taking something terrible and pulling out the whiteboard and kind of saying, well, this happened, so this will happen, this will happen, this happened. And I, I just think, I just think life is way too messy and way too depressing to kind of start thinking that way. But here's what I do know. I know with an unwavering hope that God is able to bring about the most beautiful fruit from the most significant injustices. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ, proclaims that. And so as I think about my own life, and as I think about just loving and shepherding and pastoring many of you through the worst events in your life, what my hope is is that if God can do that through the gospel, he can do that through whatever it is that you and I go through as well. The gospel is our solid hope. It is the rock upon which we build our lives in the moments that are most difficult. That's what Psalm 22, it anticipates. It's what the gospel proclaims. And it's what we believe. It's what we celebrate as a church. And so what we're going to do is we're going to pray. Um, we're not done thinking about this. We're going to respond through singing. We're going to respond through the taking of communion. And I pray that you would do so thankful of the gospel that is an anchor for the soul in the moments that are most difficult. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that your life, death, and resurrection transform the most practical and difficult areas of our lives. And what I would pray right now, um, both for the people who are followers of Jesus and aren't the followers of Jesus in this room, that as they think about... um, hardship in a relationship, as they think about hardship with their family, as they think about hardship with life, as they think about hardship uh, with maybe something medical, as they think about hardship, whatever it is, um, that while it's very maddening in our very instant gratification culture uh, not to have everything fixed right now, um, that there would be a deep rest in their souls knowing that the gospel is true, that Jesus Christ is victorious over sin. And you love us and you can perfectly relate to whatever it is that we're going through. And so I pray that as we sing, we would celebrate that truth. I pray that as we take communion, 
we would celebrate that truth. And I pray that even as we leave tonight, we would scatter change by that truth. Let us practically believe and uh, celebrate you now. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.